Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome back to our coverage of House of the Dragon. Today we're talking about Season 1, Episode 8, The Lord of the Tides. And it's kind of become a running joke that I've just been saying each episode is the best one as we go. So I'll just, I'll say it a little differently this time. I think this episode was the most emotionally devastating. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I would say it's easily the most emotional. Like last week where I said I jumped up and clapped at the ending for Lenor, this one was the one that really brought tears to my eyes for the first time uh, in the entire series. And that's not a knock on the emotional beats before, but I found the work they've done with some of these characters, specifically say Viserys and Damon, really paid off emotionally this episode. And then when you come back to it, after the tears have dried, you can look a little, I think, a little closer at the structure of it. Because I knew going into this episode that we would have the Veymond plot of fighting over the succession at Driftmark, and I knew we would have more conflict between the princess and the queen factions. But I kind of assumed they would just run parallel, like an A plot and a B plot would cut back and forth. And it was really smart writing to tie them together instead, that they used the Driftmark succession as a way to instigate the Greens versus Blacks showdown, like plucking out a stray thread until you've unraveled an entire sweater. And that way, the Driftmark succession doesn't just seem like background detail, and you really get a sense of how the fight over the Iron Throne bleeds into everything. The question of who's in charge in King's Landing will determine who is in charge on Driftmark, because Vaymond is only bold enough to make his move, because the High Towers are running the royal court and he thinks they'll back him up. But if you flip it around, the question of who's in charge on Driftmark will also have an impact on who's in charge in King's Landing. Because if Rhaenyra and her allies lose this fight, she will have a much steeper hill to climb to the Iron Throne. That's like an Ouroboros. It's like the idea of legitimacy is eating itself alive. And it's, it's not clear what the main plot is because they're both constantly influencing each other. Yeah, it's like the dragon eating itself instead of the snake eating yes, itself. absolutely. But I thought, yeah, this was definitely done. They allowed the Driftmark secession to both act as a synecdoche for the larger struggle for the Iron Throne, while also tying directly into the secession for the Iron Throne conflict. And that it helps us learn a little bit more about Vaymond, and especially Rhaenys, who is a character I've wanted to see more of. Eve Best has some of her best material to play this season thus far, and we get to see her do it opposite some fresh faces. Coming into every episode of House of the Dragon now, the kind of the first question has become how it's going to handle the time jump. In this case, it's a six-year time jump. So what do you show? What do you not show? I think it works well to skip over the estrangement between Corlys and Rhaenys. We can easily fill in that gap because they were fighting in the last episode, and then they lost Laenor, which is the kind of thing that can just as easily drive a couple apart as bring them together. And in this case, it makes sense it drove them apart. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most traumatic things that any parent can go through. And the effect that it would have on the relationship that bore it obviously can be catastrophic in some instances, as we might see here. So yeah, Rhaenys' voice comes in before we even see anything in this episode, and she immediately tells us six years have passed. The camera rises as we find ourselves behind the Driftwood throne, and we get our best shot of it as the remnants of a giant barrel, perhaps at one point holding wine or rum from some voyage long ago. It reinforces the notion that nothing was given to House Valerion. It was gathered, it was earned, that in the endless drifts of the sea, we will make our seat. This just deepens everything we already know about Corlys, but would also explain why Vaymond is adamant to not let the spoils of House Valerion to pass over to the strong bastards. And in that same vein, I think it makes total sense that Corlys responded to what seemed like the death of his son and the collapse of his marriage, that he responded to that by going back to the sea. Like, that is exactly what Laenor did. That longing to sail over the horizon seems to define the Valerians. Even Lena, young Lena, in one of the early episodes, with her desire to track down Vagar, it's all about looking at the horizon, wondering might, what might be beyond it, and going to find out. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Lenor, uh, we can start a Lenor Watch segment on this podcast where we try to pin down <laughs> where he might be at any one moment. At this point, I think we can possibly rule out the Stepstones as where he might have gone fighting with Carl following the events of last episode. I really think if he was there, then Corliss would have found out about it somehow, unless they do some kind of Aomer Theoden or Aowen Theoden thing from Return of the King. I'm pretty sure he went elsewhere with his patron. Yeah, no Lenor in this one, no Corliss in this one also, even though he's being mentioned. Corliss is, is a structuring absence in this episode. He's the first domino that falls, and he, that's the, really the, the spark for the fire that takes over the whole episode. It upsets and remakes the status quo, and everything kind of flows from that. 
Yeah, Maester Kelvin describes the fever taking Corliss, who took a dagger slash to the throat. The way Kelvin describes it as he burns from within, which just keeps the fire imagery going with the series. Baemon makes his case to be heir to High Tide and Lord of the Tides, noting the bastardy of Rhaenyra's children, who are currently in line to inherit the seat of House Valerion. I want to tip my cap to actor Will Johnson, who really makes it count in this episode, seething with purpose and rage with every word coming out. Not unlike Allison last episode, he is apoplectic that no one can admit the obvious truth, and in that, it will possibly ruin his house just because everyone is pretending they don't see it. Which gets us to Veyman's plan. He's going to petition the Iron Throne directly, because a queen, Alicent, sits the Iron Throne. She has every reason in the world to support Veyman's case, as it will be founded on the case against Rhaenyra's children's legitimacy, and like Vagar, take the mighty force that is the Velaryon fleet away from Team Black and put it at the control of Team Green. Bela, Daemon's daughter, has also been taken on as a ward under the charge of Rhaenys. The politics of wards in Westeros has always been fascinating to me, especially some of the early machinations in A Game of Thrones with the confusion over where Robin, Robin Aaron was meant to be fostered. It's a smart play for Team Black. It gives Rhaenys someone to dote over and raise in the absence of her trueborn children and her husband off at war. It possibly helps keep Rhaenys aligned with Team Black in spite of the fact that Daemon and Rhaenyra may have been involved in Laenor's quote-unquote death. So we zoom over to Dragonstone now, and we get our best establishing shot to date as the camera sweeps over the pointed towers and walls we'd seen before and gives us a look at the courtyard and the inner keep before zooming right past all that to the Dragonmont. Damon is doing some spelunking, he's so cool, and returns with three dragon eggs, a fresh clutch from Syrax. Just look at Matt Smith's face here. He is legitimately thrilled, almost as if his own wife had just given birth. He's got the face of a proud father. Damon may be the Targaryen that is most dragon-like in nature, so I love the line blurring between beast and man, and it's also evocative of Daenerys referring to her dragons as her children. I'm glad we get to see more of Dragonstone. It's a setting I love, but in both A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, we're generally limited to the castle itself. We don't really explore the island. And it's such a cool, creepy setting. I love the the imagery we get, like the alien kind of imagery we get with Damon and the eggs. You can practically feel and smell everything. It's this real power, this tangible power you can lay hands on. Unlike what I was talking about earlier, just the inherent abstraction of politics where it's like, who's in charge? Well, power resides where we believe it does, so we decide, kind of, I guess. But this is real. And that's part of what makes the Targaryens different from all the other houses. Like, even the Valerians aren't riding seahorses into battle. The Targaryens' animal icon isn't just a metaphor. It's real. Damon learns from one of the Dragonstone Tamers that Vaemon makes to press his case to the Queen, which he, in turn, brings this news to Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra, in the Hall of the Painted Table, finds Jaceris doing his daily Duolingo challenge in High Valyrian, which, hello to our pal Mary doing the same thing over at the Learned Hands podcast. The Valyrian language is just another set of floppy ears for future kings of rabbits to wear. It is a trapping of power and one that sets apart House Targaryen from the other High Lords of Westeros. Extreme Rob Stark energy coming from Jason this scene. Painfully earnest, obviously doomed, trying his hardest to be the best boy he can. It's more important for him to learn Valyrian than it would be for most Targaryen princes, because everyone's questioning his parentage. Remember in earlier episodes how easily Rhaenyra and Daemon would slip into High Valyrian? It makes for a great contrast with Jace. It's literally a foreign language to him, and that's something that marks him as an outsider. And this is in spite of the fact that most Westerosi don't speak it. But part of the appeal of the Targaryens is their otherworldliness, the sense of being half-gods. It's why people follow Daemon, and it's also why they will later follow his great-grandson, Daemon Blackfire. As one follower describes him, he was the warrior himself, like a god brought down to Earth. Now, if you take that too far, you wind up seeming alien. But without it, you seem like just another native Westerosi. You have brown hair and big ears. Why should you be in charge again? It's a very difficult balance to strike, like the coin flip of the gods every time a Targaryen's born. In Bela's letter to Daemon, we learn that Rhaenys has made her own passage to King's Landing as well. Despite the supposed murder of Laenor, Rhaenys is unlike to support Vaemon's claim. So it's time for Rhaenyra and Daemon to go to King's Landing to play the Game of Thrones. 
And upon arrival, they get to do the John Travolta Pulp Fiction reaction where, where is everybody? Because when Damon and Rhaenyra step out of their carriage, there is absolutely no one there to greet them. They are afforded a herald, or at least a Kingsguard playing at one, and then finally Lord Coswell stumbles out the front door, almost as if he was pushed out. Yeah, I love that he stumbles out like Otto is right behind him, shoving him out the door. Here, you're the bottom rung of the small council. You get the shit work. Sending him out is a deliberate insult, as Damon will hint at later. By not coming themselves, the Hightowers send the message that Rhaenyra and Damon are beneath their notice. Outcasts and has-beens, rather than, you know, the heir to the throne and her future king consort. That message is meant not only for Rhaenyra and Damon themselves, but everyone watching. Because if the princess faction doesn't seem to be in charge, they won't be. But Caswell himself seems heartfelt, like he's genuinely glad to see Rhaenyra, even under these awkward circumstances. And that takes on another layer when you know that Lord Caswell is among those who will be executed by Aegon II for the crime of staying loyal to Rhaenyra. The Red Keep has changed. Hallways that were previously bustling with life are quiet and empty. The dragon murals and ironwork are all gone. In its stead is only the seven-pointed Star of the Faith. The High Towers and the Faith are both based out of Old Town, and the ties between them are deep and ancient. It allows the Queen and the Hand to project power that is independent of Targaryen power, of fire and blood. It reminds me of Robert, upon claiming the throne, getting rid of the dragon skulls and tapestries as well. As non-Targaryens, it wouldn't do to remind people of the folks that previously ruled, especially if half the country may still be sympathetic to the previous administration. There's an interesting tension at play between these symbologies. The High Towers are using the trappings of faith to appear pious, as if their rule was ordained from the seven heavens itself. Meanwhile, the Targaryens believe themselves to be gods, above the laws of common men and even the faith, who they have tried to bend to their will in the past. You gotta wonder which one of these visions the small folk and lords of Westeros might be more inclined to get behind. Yeah, that's a great point. The High Towers are feigning humility, as a contrast to the arrogance of the Targaryens. But of course, the High Towers are famously overproud and are using their connections to House Targaryen in order to seize power. So their humility is a performance, a mask for a deeper arrogance. They're acting like this castle, this city, both of them built by the Targaryens, is theirs now. Like you said earlier, these are the trappings of power. I think you're right that the High Towers are trying to suggest that they serve the gods, while the Targaryens act like they are gods. And as for which of those visions people in Westeros uh, might like more, I think. I think both of them have political appeal. It all depends on how you tell, or sell, the story. The seven-pointed star has made its way to the small council chambers, too. A giant stone-wrought symbol with God's light shining down through it on Alicent, herself wearing an ostentatiously large star from her neck. She has taken up the kink seat with her father at her right hand. Meeting Alicent here, she is giving strong Cersei vibes, eye-rolling at Lord Beesbury and just being seemingly annoyed with everyone around her. I think this is very specifically done to set up the resolution we get at the end of the episode between her and Rhaenyra. We set up Alicent here to be as cold and calculating as possible to see that defrost over the next hours of television. They prime us with the Cersei par- parallel so when Alicent zags instead of zigs, it's not just a repeat of other story beats. But Otto Man, absolutely a fucking rogue and I love it. I hope Rhaenyra was greeted in a manner as befits her station, to which Westerling just says, yeah, we did what you told us. Otto made sure there was no welcoming party, and when she, when he says befits her station, he clearly means not the heir to the Iron Throne. The rest of the small council members all get a moment here too. Jasper Wilde, Master of Laws, seems to be one of Otto's creatures, saying the Driftmark secession is a matter for the crown to educate. Grandmaster Orwile, having replaced Melos, says that Lucerus Valerion is the heir per Lord Corlys. Tylen Lannister says he's a kid who can't command a fleet, to which Beesbury rightfully points out that the secession has never relied on ability, just on titles. Or names, rather. Or blood. Lions are being drawn. Wilde and Lannister appear to have aligned with the Greens. Orwile, meanwhile, seems unbiased for the moment, though his counsel here would favor Team Rhaenyra. And Beesbury, gods bless him, he just seems too old to realize what is coming. He's a lot like Viserys that way. And same with Corlys, he's not facing the same, I think, mental decline, but he's still this this absent father whose downfall is sparking a crisis. They're all versions of each other, this generation handing off nothing but conflict to the next generation. 
And yeah, like I keep saying in these episodes, I love how Otto uses his euphemisms. He's always hiding insults inside compliments, because he's he's a political animal. That's how the game is played. And the exchange about Driftmark is interesting. On one hand, it seems like the Greens have a point that having such a young, inexperienced lord in charge of the Valerian fleet would be bad news if war breaks out from that direction again. On the other hand, Beesbury's comment about how they never usually decide these things based on ability rings true with regards to Egon, who the Greens are about to crown as the new king. What has he done to earn that? Absolutely nothing, as this episode will remind us. And you get the sense that these arguments exist as self-justifications more than anything else. I've already decided what to do, for petty personal reasons or just as a power grab, and now I need an actual philosophy I can retroactively cover that up with. Allison departs the small council chambers to go greet Rhaenyra when we get introduced to a new character. Sir Eric. Or is it Eric? No, it's Eric. Yeah, Eric. <laughs> for those at home who may not follow, a pair of twins are now on the Kingsguard. Sir Eric and Eric, one spelled A-R-R-Y-K and the other E-R-R-Y-K. I expect some Abbott and Costello-style humor fashion for these two, so just stay tuned. And Sir Eric, whichever one he may be, is there to tell Alicent that something has happened in the Prince's Chambers, which we'll get to in a bit. Meanwhile, we head over to Viserys' bedchamber, where we find Viserys has gone goblin mode, and that is not a good thing. Rhaenyra and Daemon find the king of bed, half his face hidden as if the Joker just blew it up with a bunch of oil and dynamite. His skin is sickly, his nails caked with dirt. The half we do see is so unpleasant, it really makes the mind race what the other half looks like. The king's model, City of Valyria, reflects the king's state as well, covered in dust and spider webs, mostly used as a surface to place some candles and other ballast. It's gone to ruin, or at least not received any attention, which again, metaphor for Viserys' reign and his relationship to the realm writ large. Chalkov, one more metaphor <laughs> for Viserys' collapse before he exits the stage. And all throughout the season so far, everyone has been able to tactfully ignore what's happening to Viserys, but no longer. And we get hints at what's going on earlier in the episode, with both Vaymond and Rhaenyra talking about how the High Towers rule the Red Keep now, but they don't say why. And now we know. It all makes sense when we see Viserys, that he's, he's just barely being kept alive. Not just that he's barely alive, but that he's clearly being kept alive. The High Towers are using him as, as an opioid hand puppet to allow Otto to sit the Iron Throne without anyone calling it a coup. So the most powerful man in the realm is actually the least powerful man, at least until he decides otherwise later in the episode. And yeah, great call on the, the mystery of the other half of his face. I got the sense that Viserys is bandaged up less for his sake than for the sake of anyone looking at him. So we don't have to think about how bad it's gotten. And he just croaks out who goes there when they enter the room. Which reminds me of the opening line of Hamlet, when one of the, the guardsmen asks who goes there to the empty night. And then later, of course, the ghost of Hamlet's father arises. But in this case, Viserys himself, the one asking the question, he's the father figure who is about to die and unleash chaos. Yeah, and all three actors absolutely kill it here. There's going to be a lot of Patty Considine to fawn over later this episode. So for now, I wanted to focus on Emma's Rhaenyra and Matt Stamen. Rhaenyra has this piteous look on her face, sadness for the father she truly loves in spite of his shortcomings. Damon, well, Damon is having a hard time looking at his brother, which says something to me given how much fucked up shit we know Damon has seen in his life. Half a crab feeder much? Both convey a sadness, a regret perhaps that they did not get to spend some time with Viserys in his twilight years. Viserys, as best I can tell, actually seems delighted they are here right now. It's hard to tell between the winces and labored breath, but I think he's happy to see his daughter and brother at least one last time. And knowing the political state of things, it's very possible he wasn't even alerted that they were coming. Alicent and Otto may have just tried to deal with them and send them off without quote-unquote worrying the king. Damon gets to the point of their arrival, but at least in my opinion, Smith's performance makes it feel like Damon doesn't feel great about this. Rhaenyra shoots him a look, and Damon's wordless response just says, Yeah, I know, but we did come here to do this, and we gotta try. There's a good comment where Viserys says, We won that war years ago, regarding the Stepstones, to which Damon looks down and says, No. Couple reads here. Could just be sad that his brother has completely forgotten the Stepstones matter, was not settled, or possibly Damon holds himself somewhat responsible for the military situation there. 
He did He did basically kill the crab feeder, take a crown, and then leave. Not garrisoning or holding it was a failure called out by Rhaenyra at the small council a couple episodes back. And I'm not normally inclined to think Damon feels regret about many things, but the way he acts in this episode, specifically in the presence of his brother, has me wondering. He seems more pensive and kindly than we've ever seen him, which again, not words I'd use for Damon Targaryen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, the great subtle work from Matt Smith, who along the same line, I, his performance I would not generally call subtle, but he finds so many small ways to show you how Damon has changed as he's gotten older. Unlike Patty, he doesn't have physical changes to work with, so it's more about attitude, like time has sanded off many of his hard edges. Not all of them, of course, blood and cheese are still on the horizon. But that desperate need for attention has faded. He's no longer driven to break shit in order to get Viserys to pay attention to him. And agreed, you can really see the regret on his face when they talk about the Stepstones, like Damon is only realizing, too late, that he was treating this like a game, and that if he hadn't, well, things might be different now that the stakes have changed. Damon can't hide the fact that they've come here to make political use of Viserys. Like, this isn't just a visit, and they're doing it in a more kindly way than the High Towers, but they are still forcing this dying man back into the game, and you can tell it hurts them both to do it. So Damon just tries to rush through it, tell him what we need, get the hell out of this room, but Rhaenyra knows that to make it stick, they gotta introduce Viserys to his new grandkids, the legacy to outlive him, especially the one named for him. And it's heartbreaking to watch him apologize for himself when the kids start crying. He just starts saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again. It seems like all Viserys can do at the end is say that he's sorry. He's full of even more regrets than his brother. Yeah, when Damon says Viserys needs to reaffirm Lucerys as heir to High Tide, Viserys just responds, wait, did something happen to Corlys? Which Damon told him not 90 seconds ago. Rhaenyra takes this as enough for now on the Driftmark question. Instead, she's going to introduce her father to his grandchildren, Aegon, yes, another one, and Viserys, I guess another one of those two. Patty does some great physical acting here. He rubs his eyes a little bit before opening them to see the children. He had them shut all up to this point. I presume even the light hurts him at this, <laughs> at this point. He had to warm up and relax his eye muscles just to get them to open. Of course, Crazy Goblin Man scares the children, so he asks for his tea from Damon. Damon takes a whiff of the cup and shows it to Rhaenyra. As we'll find out later, he's being sedated with Milk of the Poppy. The immediate Song of Ice and Fire comparison for me is Littlefinger treating Sweet Robin with sweet sleep in the Yiri, keeping him inert so that he can fully rule in his stead. We next come to Allison talking to a young blonde-haired handmaiden, Diana, who was raped by Prince Aegon. She was taken unawares by the prince, and she wasn't at fault, and the queen needs to believe her. Allison, for her part, says that she does, but again, it's not a matter of truth, but what other people will believe, what the perception might be. In casting a blonde-haired child here, I wonder if Allison looks at this girl as a young Rhaenyra. Not in her actions, but just the whole indiscretion of youth thing. And to cap off the parallel, she gives the child moon tea and some coin for her troubles. A couple of things. For her troubles reminds me of what Theon Greyjoy said to Dagmar in Season 2 for his troubles in regards to the farmer whose boys he killed. More meaningfully, this is where the Cersei-esque performance in the earlier scene really pays off. We've seen our sweet queen Cersei speak kindly to someone to get what information she needs and then discard the person the meaning they aren't useful. So this whole time, I was waiting for Allison to do something cruel. When Diana says, I won't tell anyone, and Alicent responds, I know you won't, those are the lines I'd expect right before the girl would be killed. I fully expected Sir Larys Strong to enter stage right, and Alicent to say, please see to this young girl's needs, the same way Cersei would command Kyburn to disappear them into the black cells, or worse. So when it's moon tea and a sack of money, my brain was like, oh, this isn't that. Reinforced by the last shots of the zoom in on Allison's face as she watches the young girl down the tee, she's seen the story before. She sees another girl destroyed by the powerful men around her, something that happened to her. And now she's inflicting that on the next generation. Who even knows what the long-term effects of Moon Tea are, especially for a child so young? We know that Liza had many traumatic pregnancies following her uh, being ordered to take Moon Tea after coupling with Baelish. 
We should also highlight the Talia character here, who was a named handmaiden previously and seems to be elevated to Allison's go-to gal and maybe keeper of the household. We will see her later on in this episode informed to Lady Masaria about everything that occurred at the dinner. It's interesting to think about how Allison is looking at Diana because I think you're right that on on one hand she's seeing younger Rhaenyra, like the way Allison talks about how women are viewed with their sexuality, or of course the presence of the moon tea, which Rhaenyra took in a previous episode. But I also think Alicent might be looking at Diana as a younger version of herself, that this is a young Alicent. And Alicent is realizing that by putting her son in power, she is perpetuating the same abuses and restrictions she has chafed against. And you can see here, it's just, it's great acting. You can see her on the knife's edge between affection and revulsion, relating to the girl enough to hug her close, but then stepping back. The Lord's face comes down and she speaks with her father's voice, threatening her with public opinion. The sort of girl who might have enticed him in the first place. You know what happens to girls like that. And the passive voice is very key there. Allison's not saying, this is something I would do. Who knows? It'll just, it'll just happen to you. It's the same categorical thinking that drives Vaymond to call Rhaenyra a whore later in the episode. Women are saintly Madonna figures until they're tainted by sex. While the men, having sex with them, are untainted by their desires or even their actions, which are seen as natural, inevitable. They're just beasts beneath the boards. What are you going to do? Alicent knows what she needs to do in order to preserve Egon's reputation, which is valuable political currency. Diana's misery and fear break her heart. She can't ignore that, let alone enjoy it the way someone like Joffrey would, but nor can she do anything meaningful about it without undercutting her own family. Speaking of her own family, Alicent goes to uh, dress down her oldest son, who is already completely naked, so maybe that's not the right turn of phrase. <laughs> but, you know, she yells at him for raping this handmaiden, and Aegon is absolutely flippant about this. He just thinks taking that woman was a bit of fun, that she's overreacting. It's very typical entitled male behavior, especially for a man with power. And Allison just slaps the shit out of him, you know, talk shit, get slapped, and throws a mm -hmm. you are no son of mine at her at him, which, you know, obviously isn't a literal thing, but kind of like we, we're projecting an image here and you're doing everything you can to break that image. Helena comes in at this point asking after Diana, and Allison wordlessly just goes over and hugs her. I read that mostly as... Man, I'm so sorry I stuck you with your shitty older brother. Yeah, Alicent is, is venting her rage here, not only about this specific incident, but also the pattern at work. How Helena is trapped even worse than Alicent was, and how Egon doesn't even seem to realize the gravity of what he's done. As he says, it was only a bit of fun, and he can't see anything from any other perspective. He can't see through Diana's eyes, as she described it, where she turned around and he was just there. He totally lacks empathy, he totally lacks imagination, and he's not even ambitious enough to be a supervillain like his brother Aemond. Aegon just takes and takes and takes. That's his lot in life. As he says, he never asked to be king, and he's fully aware that he is not up to the job. Even he doesn't seem to be getting anything out of this, which is a growing question on the show. Who exactly is benefiting from these dynamics? Well, no one individual but a belief system and a hierarchy that they all contribute to in their own way. Like Egon, Helena doesn't seem to be quite aware of what's happening. For her, Diana was someone to help with the children, and that's it. So where is she? That's strange. And you can sense Alicent's despair that these problems are too big to fix. Like, what does it really mean to slap Egon and tell him you are no son of mine when you're going to put the crown on his head anyway? Even as she tears into Egon for forgetting Diana's name, that clearly really pisses Alicent off, Alicent still can't put it in terms of Diana as this individual person that you attacked. All she brings up is, is the shame inflicted on the other women, on Helena, on me, your mother. She's trying to find something that Egon cares about enough to appeal to, but Egon doesn't care about anything. The image is everything, and beneath that, there's just nothing to hold on to. Back in Viserys' bedchambers, Rhaenyra and Damon get to do a good cop, bad cop routine on Alicent. Damon gets to ask the pointed questions about the lack of a welcoming party or the redecorating of the Red Keep. Rhaenyra says, surely Alicent's just busy ruling the realm, something we have no clue about. Alicent, on her part, uh, answers pretty deftly, with good, pious answers. The images of the Seven help provide guidance through uncertainty, and gods have authority, or some BS like that. The question, of course, is what authority will rule on Baemon's claim tomorrow? Exactly. The gods aren't going to descend and do it for us, so what are we going to do with it? 
And this is one of those scenes where I think it it adds layers to keep the previous scene in mind. Like, I got to imagine that Alicent is thinking the whole time about what Egon has done. Look how hard she has to work to keep Rhaenyra and Daemon at bay. And for what? So her rapist failson can keep on raping and failing? Daemon is at his most relatable here. He's not only furious at how the Hightowers have usurped the throne, but he's also just frustrated. He's pinching his nose, Picard style. He's just sick of playing these rhetorical games and having to pretend to be friends with their enemies. I think he'd rather be at home with the kids, where they can all be themselves, rather than playing their roles on this stage. I also love Damon muttering that not only has Viserys forgotten his own name, but Alicent has. She's acting like the Targaryens aren't in charge here. And when Rhaenyra scorns Alicent's reliance on the maesters, you know she's thinking about her own mother, and the moon tea she had to drink. So to Rhaenyra and Damon, Alicent has become this nightmarish figure. It's everything they've always feared and hated. Only the audience knows that Alicent, far from being a conniving mastermind, is only just barely keeping her shit together herself. Jace Valeria now takes his younger brother Luke to the training yard to reminisce about old times. I think you can see Sir Eric and Sir Eric dueling in the background. Everyone's eyes are trained on the boys, though. Their bastardy and claim are in question, and even Luke is old enough now to comprehend why people are looking at him. The main event, of course, is two men dueling with live ammunition. It is Amond and Kristen Cole. The former in cosplay of Daemon Targaryen, just with an eye patch, and he even does Daemon's sword point when he beats Cole. Kristen is seen swinging his giant Morningstar, which we last saw in the tourney to open the series. The question of using actual weapons was posed, and my thinking is, at this point, Amond is psycho enough to only train with edged weapons. And with Cole, you do have two of the best and most disciplined fighters going at it, so you're implicitly trusting the other not to kill. I think of Joffrey asking for edged weapons in the Winterfell Courtyard to deal with Rob back in early A Game of Thrones. Amond is like if Joffrey had gotten his wish and had been training as such for many years. But boy, howdy do I love this introduction or reintroduction to Amon Targaryen, now all grown up. Besides being tall enough to be a starting power forward in the NBA, he's shown to us through the eyes of the strong boys first, who have not hit that same growth sport nor seem as fearsome in battle. They look at him and are like, oh shit, oh no, when they realize it is Aemond, which I think immediately situates us in the idea that Aemond is dangerous. If, you know, Vagar didn't do that before. <laughs> <laughs> and also, he just beat Kristen Cole, the only person we've uh -huh. seen capable of beating Daemon Targaryen in combat thus far. I really liked the little exchange between Luke and Jace as they walk into the training yard, where Luke says, oh, it's smaller than I remember. And Jace says, it looks exactly the same. They're both right. It hasn't changed. The crack in the wall Luke made with Kristen's Morningstar is still here. They're the ones who changed. So too has Amond, who is, yeah, quickly becoming my favorite character on the show. Ewan Mitchell does a fantastic job straddling the line between genuine menace and campy theatrics. Unlike Egon, he takes himself seriously. That's why he says, I don't give a shit about tourneys. But he is happy to poke fun at everything else. We don't see Vagar in this episode, but that godlike feeling Aemond had from claiming her is clearly still with him. What he said about the eye being a worthy trade, clearly he's still feeling that. Aemond is just so much fun. He's dangerous, he's unpredictable. He's everything I hoped Euron would be on the show. He's an anime villain translated to live action. Vaemon Valerian arrives at this point, entering the courtyard and shooting daggers out of his eyes at Lucerus Valerian specifically. He first meets privately with Otto and Allison to discuss the secession ahead of the public performance of the dispute. Perhaps boldly, Vaemon just sits his ass down next to Otto, not asking permission of the queen. With war looming, it doesn't make sense to leave control of the fleet to a child, argues Vaemon. Plus, if the queen grants Vaemon's boon, then she will have made a powerful ally and taken one away from Team Rhaenyra. Seems like a pretty good deal for the Hightowers. And yet, as Alicent says, she feels uneasy about it. Otto is accustomed to using people as pawns. Alicent is getting cold feet, and I think it's because this isn't abstract for her anymore. Now with Rhaenyra arriving in the flesh, it's so much easier to hate her when she's over the horizon, out of sight. It's harder when she's here, in front of you, visibly in pain at the sight of her father, and loving her children as much as Alicent loves hers. We now head over to the Godswood, where Rhaenyra and Rhaenys have a chat, and this is where Rhaenyra realizes that Rhaenys plans to advocate for herself in the terms of the Driftmark secession. 
Rhaenys isn't unaware of the Hand and Queen's intentions, but at the same time, what about Laenor? Rhaenyra removed him for political gain, right? Isn't that right, Rhaenyra? Rhaenys doesn't have time for Rhaenyra's denials, but Rhaenyra does dangle something worthwhile in front of her. Let's hitch our kids, a package deal, which places the true-born daughters of Lena Targaryen in line to be queen consorts and assuages the tumult of the Valerian secession, which, personal note, my parents were also a package deal, two brothers marrying two sisters. Also going to proclaim a little vindication here. When Rhaenyra suggested Jace and Helena wed two episodes ago, Allison told Viserys it was desperate. And I on this podcast said, just because it's desperate doesn't mean it's not a good idea. And Rhaenys basically says the same thing here. Yeah, it doesn't matter that it's desperate. It's still a good one. Yeah, great call. I had that same thought when I was watching the episode that it was a callback to that earlier scene. So much of politics is about decoupling intention from effect, because you have to be able to seize opportunities as they come. Even though Rhaenys knows full well that Rhaenyra is using Rhaena as like a human shield, playing on the older woman's emotions, that doesn't stop it from working. Rhaena and Bela bind them together, despite Laenor's death. Rhaenys' children are gone, there's nothing she can do about that, but her grandchildren are still here, their future is unwritten. And while Rhaenys leaves this scene on an ominous note saying she's going to have to stand alone, she ultimately stands with Rhaenyra and Daemon when it counts. So rain and thunder foley work lead us into Rhaenyra, once again going to Viserys' bedchambers, alone this time, late at night, to beg him to stand for Lucerys' claim for Driftmark. But when Rhaenyra appears, Viserys says, Alicent? A nice twist given the opposite confusion will happen at the end of the episode. One thing I wanted to note here, in every scene Viserys is in, Rhaenyra, Daemon, and their ilk are positioned on Viserys' quote-unquote good side, the one with the functioning eye. In the bedchambers here, when Viserys is seated on the Iron Throne, and later at dinner, Rhaenyra is on the same side, in Viserys' purview. Team Green is on the opposite end, the blind side, or when Viserys is in mask, the gilded side. Maybe this indicates the Greens are the bad side, or just that he is blind to their movements. The fateful scene at the end of this episode, Allison talks to him while on his covered side, or at least his bad side, which also ha- helps explain Viserys' confusion. Anyway, Rhaenyra comes to Viserys to ask if he truly believes the Song of Ice and Fire to be true, that the realms must be united to face the North, but then she also says in naming her, he divided the realm. Emma Darcy is heartbreaking here, tears rolling down their face as Rhaenyra talks about the burden being heavy that she didn't even really want it in the first place. But if she's going to go through with it, she needs Viserys to come to her aid. And he just kind of rolls over and murmurs incoherently as lightning crashes off in the distance. Yeah, that lightning. Something I really love about A Song of Ice and Fire and also the shows is the way George infuses horror into fantasy. I think that is uh, a lot of the story's appeal because it makes it more more visceral and intense. Maybe for people who aren't into fantasy world building on its own, it grabs you. It doesn't let you go. And there's terrific horror lighting in this scene, starting with that long shot of Rhaenyra just spookily appearing, approaching her father's bedside like a ghost. The thunder is rumbling. The lightning's flashing. And what Rhaenyra says here really sums up so much of the story. You told me our purpose in being here was uniting the realm against a common foe. But by naming me heir to that purpose, you divided the realm. As good as it sounds to get everyone together against the ice demons and their zombie army, the only means of doing so is the Game of Thrones, which degrades and corrupts them all. Their means are unworthy of their ends. I thought I wanted it, she sobs, but the burden is a heavy one. Alicent would probably say the same thing. They all would. Except maybe Otto, the purest of all political animals, and that's why I think he's the closest thing this story has to a central antagonist, because he's the one who looks at human emotions, wrinkles his brow, and goes, what are those? My only child, Viserys calls Rhaenyra, which cuts both ways. On one hand, it's a measure of his devotion to Rhaenyra, but on the other, Viserys, you know that's not true, right? (laughs) And his failure to raise his sons has contributed to their many issues, as well as leaving Alicent all alone to pick up the pieces. Moreover, as Rhaenyra says, he has never backed up his choice when it counts. Agree that Emma Darcy's killing it here, so is Patty. You get the sense that they're both burdened, not only with power, but the inability to express all they want to say to each other. It reminds me of that great scene in The Godfather, when Don Vito's getting older, Michael's beginning to take over the business, and Vito says, 
You know, I, I did what I had to to take care of my family. I won't apologize for that. But I was doing that so you could do something different. I thought you'd be a senator. You'd be a governor. You'd be legitimate. And now you're just me. And he says, just wasn't enough time, Michael. Just wasn't enough time. And you get that same feeling here. Just another peasant Avanti, as Michael says. Mm-hmm. So now we get to see Viserys on his treatment table. And good Lord, let's get that makeup crew an Emmy. <laughs> The maesters tend to Viserys's many ailments, and we get a good fucking look at his whole gangle creature thing. He's definitely got an ill-favored look about him. We see the lesions on his skin, the blisters, his missing arm. Viserys wants to do dinner. Not now, Otto, but tonight. Everyone's here, it may be his last chance to see his entire family, the titular House of the Dragon. He also rejects Milk of the Poppy. Not today. Today, he thinks. Or tries to. Otto takes to the Iron Throne to speak with the king's voice on the matter of Vaemon's claim for Driftmark. The camera starts with a shot of just the Iron Throne, surrounded by melted steel, and slowly pans down to Otto starting the proceedings, then taking a seat on the chair. This show's take on the Iron Throne pays dividends here. On both sides of the throne, swords, and in between them, the Iron Throne itself. When the camera pulls out, the greens are on the left, and Team Black on the right. The Civil War is made manifest in the imagery. Ooh, that's great. Like those swords are just there, ready to strike. They're kind of frozen in place. The war hasn't started yet, but it's just about to. And yeah, great point on the camera work. This this is it's basically a mirror image of the opening shot that you were talking about earlier. That we went we went over the driftwood throne from behind, and now we're starting above the iron throne, facing it and panning down. And Otto was speaking about the same thing Rainus and Vaymond were earlier. Corliss's absence, and how it brings all these subterranean tensions to the surface. Yeah, and this is yet another sequence where much of the main cast is gathered, and we can see how everyone is looking at each other, or just off in the distance, like Aegon, who once again looks bored at the entire proceedings, staring off at nothing or perhaps some handmaids just off screen. Aemon, meanwhile, is just staring down Luke and Jace. Vaemon makes his case, and at first is very careful to not outright name Rhaenyra's children's bastards. He speaks mostly of his blood, his house, his rights. Rhaenyra is then asked to make her case, but before she can do her big city lawyer routine, the king's guard throw open the doors to announce King Viserys, titles, titles, titles. Ramin Jawadi hits us with a version of the king's arrival or the king's road music from early Game of Thrones as the king slowly limps his way to the throne. Briefly, Rhaenyra is positioned in front of the throne, so as he's hobbling forward, he's making his way to her as much as he is his seat. And Alison, for her part, actually does look on Viserys with concern. I think a mix of po- political disappointment, surely, but also just actual concern for her husband, who probably shouldn't be physically doing this. I think you can see in Alison's reaction, and even more so in Otto's, that clearly the Hightowers thought this was never going to happen again that they would be ruling from this room until Viserys died, and then play it from there. Up until this point in the episode, Viserys has seemed powerless. But now, even though he's hobbling and groaning with every step, he's the center of gravity again, because none of what was just said in this room means anything if he decides to countermand it. And it was also kind of a nice little uh, twist for us book readers, because after Viserys cut himself on the throne and lost his fingers, um, it is documented in Fire and Blood that he never once again sat the Iron Throne. And this show has been pretty good about that. After the first or second episode, once he cut himself, we don't really see Viserys sitting on the Iron Throne. So having him get one last hurrah on the pointed chair, it really works as a nice little twist. Just a little one for us. But it's a struggle for the king. He refuses aid from the king's guard, but when he drops his crown on the steps up to the Iron Throne, it's Damon who comes to his aid. Viserys accepts his brother's help here, and I gotta say, I got really emotional about this. One of the sweetest things we've seen in the show so, so far. And once Viserys is seated, Damon puts the crown on his head. It's a nice counterpoint to Damon in episode 4, King of the Narrow Sea, where he enters the throne room and just strides with purpose to lay his crown down at Viserys' feet. And it's even a little bit reminiscent of Alicent's arrival at the feast in episode 5, really using the entrance and the long runway to the throne to affect the season. And it's even more effective knowing that it was improvised, as came out after the episode, that it wasn't planned for Viserys' crown to fall and for Damon to pick it up and crown him. 
And I think they were smart to keep it in. A part of making a show or a movie is knowing how to take advantage of those moments as they come. My go-to example is from the, the movie Collateral, the Michael Mann movie with Jamie Foxx as the cab driver in L.A. and Tom Cruise as, as the hitman forcing him to drive around to so he can assassinate everybody. And there's the, the great bit in the movie, the part everyone references when they're driving along and the audio slave is playing because it's Michael Mann. And uh, they just they spot a coyote on the streets and his eyes kind of flashes eerily and Tom Cruise stares him down like, oh, I understand you, fellow, fellow lone wolf, fellow animal in the wild. And that was not planned. That's not in the script. They just saw the coyote. They kept filming. They kept it in. And that ends up being the most beloved and referenced part of that movie. And yeah, Damon crowning Viserys says more than any line of dialogue could about how age and experience have changed Damon. What the brothers used to fight about just seems irrelevant now. Not only in the face of the High Tower's power plays, but also in the face of time, the ultimate enemy, one we can't fight no matter what we try. Viserys is wearing his, his Phantom of the Opera slash Kingdom of Heaven mask, but that only calls attention to what he's not showing people. And the, the sad music that you mentioned, the emphatic close-ups on everyone, the tenderness of Daemon fighting for Viserys so Viserys can fight for Rhaenyra, it's an incredible moment, and it really grounds what could be dry politics in human connections. For just a moment, this is just a family. They're just people. And then you remember what they're here to do. Power really is what robs them of that humanity. Viserys takes over the proceedings, playing up some confusion. Not the old age and disease adult confusion we've seen, but more incredulousness. Hadn't we settled this a long time ago? The only one who could possibly say any different is Rhaenys, who he calls forth. I think playing up the confusion is exactly the right way to think about it. It's like when Danny says, I am a young girl and know little of the ways of war. It's a, it's a way of rhetorically trapping your opponents. Like Viserys knows damn well why they're doing this, but he's making the same point Rhaenyra was just about to make before Viserys interrupted her. Like, this is a farce. This is settled. This shouldn't be happening at all. In order to establish credibility, he turns to Rhaenys, getting the necessary buy-in from a stakeholder on Driftmark. Rhaenys makes her own move here supporting Rhaenyra and Lucerys's claim to Driftmark while making public the betrothal of all these kids. Viserys then deems the matter settled, but Vaemond is not having it. Vaemond is ready to put his foot in his mouth, and Daemon goads him into it. Say it, he urges Vaemond, and once he speaks the truth and or treason, his life is forfeit. And Vaemond, for his part, is not just satisfied with calling his nephews bastards, but also calling Rhaenyra a whore. He reminds me here of Rickard Karstark during his downfall and his eventual execution by Rob. He's out of hope, he's got nothing left to lose, and he's just trying to cause as much trouble as he can on the way out for the people he blames for screwing everything up. And you get the, the catharsis of someone saying what everyone is thinking. As, as insulting and, and sexist as Vaymond is being, there is that catharsis of someone saying out loud, her children are bastards, what everyone else is kind of not saying, putting in euphemistic terms. But even this is stage-managed, because Damon is yet taunting Vaymon into saying it to give Damon an excuse to kill him. Because as soon as Viserys says, I'll have your tongue for that, Damon goes, okay, and chops his head off. Or chops half his head off, I should say. It reminds me of the scene in Robocop, which is something you could just drop into any episode I do. It reminds me of the scene in Robocop at the very end when Robocop's trying to kill the main villain, but he can't because the main villain has programmed Robocop to not be able to kill anyone who works for their dystopian corporation. So Robocop has to turn to the villain's boss, who fires the villain, and so then Robocop cop can kill him. Same kind of deal here, where Damon is ready and willing to kill Vaymond the whole time, but he has to taunt Vaymond into pissing off Viserys. So then Damon has Viserys's, not exactly permission, but just kind of, he can make it seem legitimate that he's not just killing a random guy. Oh, the king already threatened him. I'm just carrying out the king's will. Yeah, Viserys just called for his tongue, but Damon just took his whole top off the head, <laughs> just to be sure. It does remind me a little bit of a blow Stannis dealt in the Blackwater Battle episode, but in the darkness we didn't get to see as much detail as we do here, which includes Vaemon's tongue still very much attached to his bottom half of his jaw. Aemon looks at... Amon looks at Damon after this almost lustily. The gears are slowly turning in his head. Oh, I could do this. I could be like this guy. Great little moment, that kind of hero worship shining in his eyes. And it's interesting to wonder, because Amon, as you've already mentioned, as we'll say again, is clearly imitating Damon. And it's interesting to consider how that happened because they really haven't spent much time together. So where is Amon getting this image from? Where are the stories coming from? I was thinking I would love if Otto and Alicent like told the stories of Damon to Aemond as like a cautionary tale, like don't be like this guy. But Aemond was listening like, no, this sounds awesome. Why, why would I not be like this guy? He sounds cool. <laughs> and I can't really blame him. Like 
who should Amon's role model be? Who should he be trying to be like? What, Egon Or Otto? Or Kristen Cole? It's not like Viserys ever paid attention to Amon. Remember, his reaction to the whole Pink Dread thing was like, well, why did Amon believe them? He should have seen that prank coming. So Amon, I think, seized on Damon because all the other potential role models just didn't seem up to the job for him. So we get a really quick... Uh autopsy scene with what's left of Amon's body or rather we see the two halves it's like 90% of his body and then the 10% that's the top of his head clearly separated from the rest mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Grand Maester Orwell comes over to Rhaenys and asks her perhaps she would not like to look on the face of death but Rhaenys says she has seen the stranger too often to worry about that anymore I love that line she has he cares little whether my eyes are open or closed death deflates everything there's nothing left of Vaymond, who was only just full of life and complaints and anger, and now he's just meat. And it, it kind of, even though Vaymond was her rival, you can tell that Rhaenys is not getting anything out of this. And it's just a great visual scene on top of just how gnarly Vaymond's body looks. We get this great shot of Rhaenys that has Eve Best kind of on a real strong close-up, and she's foregrounded in front of a bunch of candles and soft focus. Um, it just kind of... you. I think of that scene in Clue where that lady's saying the fires in her brains or whatever, and you can see all the trauma, then all this death in her family that's, you know, kind of left her, as you say, like deflated. And now we get to the dinner scene where we have Rhaenyra and Allison staged like they are in that drawing in Fire and Blood. Apologies, I know this isn't a visual medium, but if you've read <laughs> Fire and Blood, you know exactly the picture I'm thinking mm-hmm. of. Viserys is then carried in on his litter and seated at the center, and he gives a big, belabored welcoming speech. But before he can get started, Allison gives him a prayer to which Damon laughs at. I love his his sarcastic little eye roll when Allison is paying tribute to Vaymond's like, oh, we're so sorry he's gone. R- really? But I killed him and I'm sitting here eating with all of you and no one's stopping me. So how much do you really care about this? It's nothing but a fig leaf. It's a polite euphemistic way of covering up the bloodshed that makes this meal possible. And I also love the the little quick insert shot of Aemond praying with his eye closed like mommy's perfect little angel. He's just got a little halo above his head. But of course, it's it's equally as sarcastic as his uncle. He is also not taking this seriously. He's, He's kind of just like showing us a parody of what he's supposed to be doing in this moment. Viserys' first toast is made to the betrothal of Rhaenyra and Daemon's children from previous marriages, and the second toast is to Lucerys becoming Lord of the Tides. Viserys stands and then talks about how his family gives him both joy and sorrow. The people he loves the most all hate each other. While I can't say Viserys is doing a good job of holding things together, you can see how nearly everyone here has genuine affection for him, and that's just enough to keep things from falling apart. The mask comes off now, and we can all give our favorite touchstones for what Eilis Viserys looks like. I go to Gus Fring at the end of Breaking Bad Season 4, or perhaps Robert Patrick Terminator once he takes a shotgun blast to the face. Anyway, Viserys reveals himself, bears his entire heart for these people, saying he loves them all, and really wishes they would put aside those grievances. It's not any different than his previous requests, please be nice to me, for my sake, But the dilapidated look has everyone feeling a pity and remorse in the moment. He looks around the table at all of them in turn and says, I am your husband, your father, your brother, your grandsire, and soon I will be nothing. It's a reckoning with the sweep of time. Viserys is haunted not only that his face is no longer handsome, but, as he says, that it might never have been at all. How long have I been lying to myself? How long have I been blind? And he, he tells them to set aside their grievances, and he, he means it so strongly, but what does set aside your grievances mean when you're dealing with people with irreconcilable interests? Like, my heart breaks with Viserys' voice when he begs them to get along for the love of him, but he just wields too much power to be a family man, and there is more to his job than making everyone happy. Rhaenyra then jumps to make a toast to Alicent, who has been at Viserys' side through all this, and has been loyal through and through. Alicent looks at Rhaenyra with some combination of regret, desire, maybe a little bit of hate. But she returns a toast, saying they have more in common than they sometimes allow. I think you spoke to this well earlier, talking about their children and the systems that are being forced on them as women in this society. 
Allison raises a cup to Rhaenyra and reaffirms Rhaenyra as the future queen, to which Otto gives a side-eye, but Rhaenyra is truly happy in the moment, as are many of the kids at the table, at least on her side of it. So it seems at first like I was wrong and Viserys' big speech worked. Not that they're doing it for love of him, even, but out of love for each other. The relationship Allison and Rhaenyra once had when they were younger. But they're not the young ones now. There's a new generation, and it's their turn to fuck everything up forever. Example number one has to be Aegon, who has spent most of the dinner being a total dipshit, first to Jace and then to Bela, teasing them both that Jace is not likely to make her happy in bed. Jace stands up in anger, slamming the table, which draws Aemon to his feet, but Jace saves himself by giving a fake friendly punch in the shoulder to Aegon and then toasting his uncles Aegon and Aemon, which diffuses the situation. Helena, who appears to be slightly drunk, then raises a toast to Bela and Reyna, taking some possible jabs at Aegon, ignoring her except when he's drunk and horny. For me, I don't even think she was taking a jab at him. Like, Helena just feels compulsively honest to me. She just says whatever's in her head, and it doesn't occur to her to lie. Just as it doesn't occur to her that any marriage would go differently than hers. She's like saying, oh, this is my marriage is how marriages go, so... Good luck with the exact same thing that you'll experience. It, it reminds me of the, the Great Simpsons line when Homer is hanging out with Millhouse's aggressively divorced dad. And he, the dad points to his aggressively divorced bed that's shaped like a race car and says, I sleep in a race car, do you? And Homer just goes, no, I sleep in a big bed with my wife. And what's great about that is that Homer doesn't even mean that as an insult, even though it's devastating. He's just saying the truth. What? I sleep in a big bed with my wife. And Helene is kind of doing the same thing, but the inverse. She's like, oh, you know, my, my marriage is awful. What? That's, that's the norm, right? That's how it's supposed to be. While we're here real quick, one of our Slack member asked, uh, Helena has a really quick, you know, line, possibly prophecy about a beast being under the boards. I was wondering if you had any takes on that besides possibly, you know, the monster that's going to erupt once this war really breaks out. I, this is one of the case where I think the obvious answer might be correct. I think it's probably blood and cheese. I think especially uh, considering that they're going to be going for Helena's children specifically. People have pointed out that there aren't really much in the way of actual boards at the Red Keep since it's mostly stone and masonry. That I think might be just a little too literal. I think I think that's probably what she's referring to. What do you think? Yeah, I think that sounds about as good as anything, unless it's just some vagary that there's just something lurking underneath that's waiting to consume us all, uh, which is just kind of a vague one, which I don't think has much value. But regardless, Viserys calls for music, which heralds some laughter, dancing, and feasting. You can see Viserys soaking this in, watching Helena and Jace dance, Alicent and Rhaenyra looking friendly at each other. Hell, even Otto Hightower is clapping and smiling. Viserys, in his mind, has set everything to rights. The last thing he sees before his various conditions overpower him is his family as one, enjoying themselves in mirth. Yeah, this is another absolutely beautiful moment. Just like Viserys climbing the throne, it really it makes you feel the tragedy. Those gorgeous strings playing as Jace and Helena dance, a much happier dance of the dragons than the one we're about to get. It could have been better. It is better for a moment, but only a moment. And Viserys will take this brief glimpse of the life he wanted with him to the grave. And yes, then he's carried out once again on his litter, and in a very similar looking manner, a pig is carried in. A roasted pig and placed right in front of Amon, invoking the pink dread. And it looks as if Lucerus is the one trying to pull this gag on his uncle by having the pig serve to him first. It's important to establish that Rhaenyra's kids aren't angels, because a drama that one-sided would get boring pretty quickly. Luke is contributing to the escalation too, and you get why Aemon's uh, pretentious personality that he's affected, it's just, it's just too much fun to mock. I wouldn't be able to resist it either. And with Viserys gone, Aemon now makes a toast to the kids of Rhaenyra, listing off their qualities. They're handsome, wise, and then he lingers for a moment before he says, strong. You can see Alicent giving the subtlest of headshakes, urging her son, don't say it. And when he does say it, Allison tries to cut him off there and berates him after. Jace takes the immediate offense and makes for Amond. Luke gets up to support his brother, but Aegon is there to meet him, shoving him face first into the dinner table. The guards have to come in to restrain the kids, but Amond presses forward. This is where Damon steps forth in the middle of everything, and Rhaenyra sends the kids to bed. So even if Rhaenyra and Allison can learn to get along, their kids won't because they learned their parents' lessons all too well. And both Rhaenyra and Alicent 
honestly care more about defending their kids than they do about themselves. It's like Littlefinger says in Feast for Crows, men of honor will do things for their children that they would never dream of doing for themselves. So the very bonds that Viserys cherishes can be weaponized. Yeah, and Aemon and Damon stare each other down, and you can tell Damon is kind of tickled that this kid is taking his whole look, flattered even. And I'm going to introduce a wrestling concept here and use a 20-year-old analogy at that. It's called building heat. If you want a mid-tier guy or a newcomer like, say, Triple H to face off against The Rock at WrestleMania next year, you need to make sure that Triple H is over with the crowd, that he seems like both a legitimate threat to The Rock and that he's at least popular even if it's in a negative fashion. To push that newcomer into the main event level, you have to have him beat other guys who are top talents like, say, a Kristen Cole. And then you get Amond and Damon talking at each other, cutting promos on Monday Night Raw, saying how they can't wait to face each other at WrestleMania. I'll kill the analogy there, but hopefully you see what I'm getting at. Amond is a new quantity compared to Damon as a known one. We know the latter kicks ass. The story is building to an eventual showdown for these two, so you can see the ways in which the story is making us, the audience, take notice of Amond and as Amond as a competitor to Damon. Ewan Mitchell again is just dominating the scene, the way he slams the table and goes, final tribute, and his wide eye is feigning innocence, just like Euron's smiling eye, also a blue eye, the way he pauses just before saying strong, grinning as he shoves Jace to the ground. He's this real physical presence, and he's only brought up short by Damon. Probably my favorite part of the episode was Damon just looking Eamon up and down, and he has that bemused little grin on his face as Eamon walks away. I'm willing to bet Damon never paid much attention to Eamon up until now, and is only just realizing that his nephew is essentially wearing a Damon costume. And yeah, he looks kind of like half flattered by it, half kind of creeped out, but kind of flattering. Like, who knew I was a brand? Who knew Spirit Halloween had a me costume on sale? And it's very likely Spirit of Halloween might have Damon costumes on sale this Halloween. Hope so. So Rhaenyra and Alicent have one last chat before saying goodnight. Alicent actually wants Rhaenyra to stay, and this appears to be contrite. They appear to be burying the hatchet. Alicent not only takes and caresses Rhaenyra's arm, she takes the one she didn't cut up last episode. And Rhaenyra says, yeah, she'll see the kids home to Dragonstone, but she'll return to King's Landing on Dragonback. So back in Viserys' bed, Alicent comforts Viserys on his bad side, remember? But the king thinks it's Rhaenyra, not Alicent beside him. Viserys speaks to her about the prophecy of the Song of Ice and Fire of the prince that was promised that Aegon is the truth. It is you. You must do this, he says to Alicent. Alicent, making what sense she can of the words she recognizes, takes this to mean her son Aegon should be the heir. We get a slow pan down to the Valyrian steel dagger before finally getting Viserys' death rattle. No more, he says, a single tear rolling down his cheek, and with the last, my love, probably referring to Emma, so passes Viserys Targaryen, first of his name and ruler of the Seven Kingdoms. Then the storm broke, and the dragons danced. And I, I know this scene has proved controversial. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of people aren't into how the prophecy keeps getting tied in. And I get wanting to focus on the politics and the, the purely personal character dynamics. This isn't Song of Ice and Fire. The White Walkers aren't going to show up. But I like how this scene emphasizes how the prophecy works, how it's always worked. It's this fragment of truth. It's a handful of words that conceal more than they reveal, and you have to fill in the rest yourself. What do you fill it in with? Well, whatever you brought to the table. Your fears and your desires as they existed before you heard the word of God. What fools we were who thought ourselves so wise. The error crept in from the translation. And that's Maester Aemon talking, about as wise and well-intentioned a character as you're going to find in this world. This is what happened with Rhaegar. This is what happened with Stannis and Melisandre. This is probably what happened with Aegon V, a.k.a. Egg. It's also what happened with Aegon the Conqueror himself. Who's to say he understood his own dream completely? And now it's going to happen to Alicent. All because Viserys confused the women in his life one last time. One last time he can't differentiate between the people he loves. His human heart in conflict with itself acting as a microcosm of the war about to break out. Just like the throne, as you were saying earlier. His last words are, my love. An ironic tribute to the feelings that have caused so many problems. It reminds me of that great line from Watchmen. How have I reached this appalling position? 
with love, only love, as my guide. In all likelihood, as you say, Viserys says my love because he sees Emma. She's the only one he wouldn't confuse for anyone else. But she's only dead because of him and his desperate desire to live up to his crown and live up to this prophecy. And we don't see her. All we get is the cut to black, the final curtain. And that is going to wrap us up for Season 1, Episode 8 of House of the Dragon, The Lords of the Tide. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com, and you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find us wrapping up our coverage of The Rings of Power over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. And my latest Lord of the Rings episode, covering, or at least starting to cover, Book 5, Chapter 8, The Houses of Healing, is up on our Patreon for all our $5 and above patrons. Next week, I'm going to be jumping back into Star Wars for patrons, continuing on with Revenge of the Sith for our $5 and above patrons. Later this week, we're going to be jumping back into A Song of Ice and Fire with A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 4. And of course, next week, we're going to be back here with House of the Dragon. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week for more House of the Dragon.